Hello, I'm Rachel Sandbrooks. I'm a writer and comedian, and this is the Stand By Your Nan podcast. I've been a wild rover for many a year, and I spent all my money on whiskey and beer. Hi, it's Rachel Sandbrooks here, writer and comedian and host of this, the Stand By Your Nan podcast. We've come to an end. It's episode eight, and for this episode, differently to the other ones, I thought I'd share grandmother's stories, but not so much from me as other people who've recorded their stories and sent them in. It's a host of writers and comedians, brilliant ones, so um, it's a shorter episode this week as well. But I really hope you've enjoyed hearing about my grandmother. I hope it's made you think a little bit about your own. And keep in touch. I've got a mailing list. Go to my website, rachelsandbrooks.com, and see what I'm doing next. I'd love to hear from you too. The first story is from Maggie Whitehouse, who's a comedian, a vicar, and an expert on Kabbalah. She's also an author. And as you might expect, with all that experience, She does tell a great story. So, without further ado, here she is telling her grandmother tale. I never really knew either of my grandmothers. I was born in 1956 and in the early 1960s, where I was living, you were still a child who was seen but not heard. And we went round to grandparents' houses for stiff formal afternoon teas where you had to eat two pieces of bread and butter before you could have cake. And you only spoke when you were asked a question. It just wasn't one of those happy families of cuddly grandmas you went and spent the evening with. And the world has changed dramatically, which is wonderful. So I only heard this story about my grandma Crosby after she died when I was 16. And I wish I'd known it before. And I wish I'd got to know her as a human being because I would have loved to have heard her tell me this story. But it's true, it checks out. I'm not going to put down the actual dates here, but you can look it up if you like. But it's the story of the crashing of a Zeppelin during World War One in Suffolk. And if that Zeppelin hadn't crashed, I wouldn't be here today. So my grandmother, Marjorie Crosby, it was was 28 years old in 1917, and that was seriously on the shelf. She'd had no proposals, so therefore she was still living at home with her parents. And one morning when she woke up at three o'clock in the morning, she saw fire in the sky. It was too early for dawn, even though it was June. Way too early. The light in the sky only comes at about quarter past four in Suffolk in June. So she knew that this was something exceptional. And the distance from where the fire was appeared to her to be in the right direction and about the right distance from her friend Helen's farm. Helen also lived with her family on the farm. So Marjorie Haywood looked out of the window, saw a fire in the sky and knew she wanted to go and see if she could help. She did not wake her parents because she would have been forbidden from going out on her own and her father would have had to harness up the trap and get other people. So she literally put on a Macintosh over her nightdress and went out on her bicycle. Why did she not get dressed? Because she wore corsets and she had no one awake to tie her corsets for her. 
You didn't stop wearing corsets till after the end of the First World War. The World War was the end of corsets because they had boning in them and the metal for the boning in those days had to be used for making aircraft or for the war effort. So corsets were on their way out but they weren't out in Suffolk at that day and she couldn't put her corsets on so she kept her nighty on and put her Macintosh over it. And she cycled four miles towards Helen's farm and found out that it wasn't the farm that was on fire, which was a great relief to her, obviously, and to Helen. But it was a crashed Zeppelin. And the Zeppelin had flown to London, dropped bombs on London and was returning when it was shot down by our plucky little air force with its biplanes and its brave aviators with very little to go on. But they'd managed to bring down this Zeppelin in a Suffolk field. And as Marjorie rode up on her bicycle, she was greeted by a captain in the Suffolk Regiment. His name was George Crosby. He was in his early 30s. He was unmarried and he'd been transferred from his own Warwickshire Regiment only six weeks earlier. And he saw this woman with nut-brown, long, wavy hair cycle up on her bicycle to find out what was going on and see if there was anything she could do to help. And he fell in love with her. He loved her feisty spirit and her wavy hair and her rosy cheeks. And she stopped and she spoke to him, which, of course, she shouldn't have done because she should have been chaperoned. And they talked and they liked each other. And then Marjorie rode back home, by which time her parents were up. She was in big trouble trouble for having gone out but she had a wonderful story to tell about what that fire in the sky was and her father harnessed the pony and trap and she rode back with him to Helen's farm to talk this over with the neighbours four miles away and Marjorie's father very sensibly realised that there was something going on between her and the young captain and invited him over to dinner and the rest is history. I still wear the single string of pearls that George Crosby gave my grandma on their wedding day. And yes, I do choke up when I tell this story because it's so amazing. And I wish I could have talked to her about it. But maybe just having it on your podcast today, Rachel, is some way of celebrating my grandma's bravery feistiness and the fact that George Crosby saw that in her and knew that he wanted her to be his wife. That was great, wasn't it? And you can listen to more of Maggie Whitehouse on her podcast, Wise Women, The Vicar and the Witch. And next is Andy, who I connected with over London Writers Salon, which is a great write-in that they do every morning for an hour. Uh, Do check them out. And here's Andy's lovely story about his nan. Hi, my name is Andy and my nana's name is Anne. A good few years ago, my wife and I suggested that we go with my nana to the bingo. We thought that she'd be really pleased and keen to show us off to all her friends. As it turns out, on the drive there, she had loads of instructions for us of what to do, what not to do, because we didn't know what we were doing, and she didn't want us to show her up in front of everyone. I work as an actuary, which isn't the easiest job to describe, but when we got to the bingo, my nana started introducing me to all her friends by saying, This is my grandson. He's very clever. He's an aquarium, don't you know? After that, the bingo passed off without incident. We didn't embarrass my nana and we all had an amazing time. If you listen to episode four, you will have already heard Craig Dealey 
He's a comedian and very funny man. He's also got a brilliant tale about his nan that involves cups of tea. Now, if we all used to be sitting around in the living room, or like on a Sunday, we'd go down for tea and she'd make a cup of tea. And so she'd ask around, she'd ask my mom, do you want a cup of tea? She'd ask me, do you want a cup of tea? She'd ask my mom about my dad, does he want a cup of tea? And then she'd say to my granddad, you don't want a cup of tea, do you? <laughs> And now, from writer Mary Took, a story of her Italian grandmother. Hello, I'm going to tell you about my nan. Um, my granny, as I called her, was uh, called Lucia, and she was Italian. She'd actually married my granddad um, just shortly after the Second World War, which was when they met. Um, and one thing that I used to find really um, funny with my gran is the way that when we were little she would ask us every summer to try and guess what was false about her she said one part of me is false one part isn't real but you have to try and guess what it is and we didn't know so we used to guess her maybe it was her false teeth because we'd heard about you know old people having false teeth or you know we'd, we'd check under the table and sort of touch her leg to see if she had a false leg um, and we, honestly I don't think we ever figured it out um, years later, though, when my granny died, um, I finally kind of put two and two together because my granny had actually had a false eye. <laughs> and when she died um, and we were going through her house, I know my, my parents kept on turning up replacement eyes all over the place because she had a couple of spares, um, which was kind of a bit weird, I think, to open a box and find an eye looking out at you. But it uh, sort of reminded me of Mrs Twit when she played a trick on her husband and put her eye in the bottom of his uh, glass of beer. Um, anyway, my granny did eventually die in a car accident and I can't help thinking that if she'd had two working eyes, um, she would have seen the car coming a little bit more clearly and um, possibly not pulled out when she did. So, um, so yeah, I guess that was fairly key to, to who she was to me all the way through. And our last shared story is a poem from poet Barbara Saunders who talks of her grandmother being a refugee in the East End of London. Um, not recently, this is at the end of the 19th century. Almonds and Raisins. This song opens a trapdoor of longing, taking the kid to market, a cow, Red flowers, a green violin, a pair of lovers floating in air, dream scenes by Chagall, painted records of your life. Neighbours call you scribe, writing to their families, the family you leave behind are eating the bark of trees. They disappear in a crack of history. The grove, not a tree in sight, is blitzed, waiting for all clear. Your slow, broken English hides languages you laugh in, rocking body and soul. You said you were strong as a lion, Abba, a dandelion. You wouldn't know me from Eve. I am the youngest of the youngest. I hear you singing, my mother asleep in your arms. 
almonds and raisins, a lullaby, all our grandmothers have sung. Thank you so much to everyone. I'm going to end with a poem that I wrote for the poetry collection Stand By Your Nan and I thought it might encapsulate the whole thing. It's called By Heart. I memorised your face, all lines, all lines, but they faded like the sound of your voice, like a cloud dissolving. You left tapes, but on them are lectures by others you listen to, not your voice. The only sound of you is footsteps in the background as you change the tapes, as you walked across the room to turn it over in the ways we did back then. The sound of slow, sure steps across the room. I know it was the back room and you were sat in your armchair next to the glass, a cabinet of ornaments we weren't allowed to touch. A tiny rabbit. I think there was a deer. Crystal glasses and good plates, untouchable like a sheet of snow over fields. Never use the nice stuff, it's only for show. And behind you was the wooden door window that opened out onto the garden that you tended all weathers until nearly a century old. And I can see you listening to the tape and realising one side had reached the end. You stood and walked over to the recorder. Saying nothing, you turned it over and clicked record again. An indistinguishable moment for you like washing or breathing. I hear the voice of a lecturer, but all I have of you is footsteps. Why didn't you just say hello? Did you not know that one day I would be desperate to hear it again? 4700, the number of your phone, you said that when you picked it up. 4700, I hear them again in my head. I remember. But what I wouldn't give for you to have recorded yourself, reciting or saying hello one more time. But you stayed quiet, not feeling important enough or public enough to record it. And all I have is footsteps and the memory of a number off by heart. Thank you so much for listening to Stand By Your Nan. Goodbye. Stand By Your Nan has been written and performed by Rachel Sambrus, co-produced with Steve Keyworth, and with music by Lewis Barfoot. It's a Gertie Words production, funded by Arts Council England. I asked her for credit, she answered me nay. Such customers yours I could get every day, and it's no.